0: You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. And hello, Chris. Hello. How are you today? Good. Quite good. And hello, listeners. We hope you are good as well. Welcome back to our Common Descent Spotlight mini series. In this series, if you've been listening, this is part four, then you will know that what we're doing here is changing it up from our normal setup where we discuss scientific topics and instead focusing on scientific people in our favorite field of science. For this run of this mini series, if we do more in the future, we have chosen the theme of invertebrate paleontology, and today we are joined by invertebrate paleontologist. Dr. Christopher Ma. Hello, Chris, would you mind to introduce yourself? Certainly, a pleasure to be uh, listening, or uh, to be presenting. Um, I'm a
1: curator, or not a curator, but I'm a research associate at the National Museum of Natural History. I work on the uh, evolution and diversity of both living and fossil sea stars, which is a fairly narrow band of research. Uh, I focus mainly on living sea star species, But I've done my share of fossil uh, taxa and and exploring the uh, long evolutionary history of sea stars. And so calling me a paleontologist
0: is is fine on uh, any number of days. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Well, then you qualify to be here and we're happy to have you. I sure hope so. (laughs) Now, we understand that amusingly, just like any group of animals, the sea stars have a scientific family name and they are named for their shape from the, the, the root word aster. They are called asteroids, correct? Correct. Yes. You that leads to all sorts of confusion.
1: <laughs> yeah. So asteroidia is the name of the class of organisms I work on. Uh, they go by common names as well, sea star and starfish. Asteroids is, of course, a term that everyone thinks about when they envision giant, massive rocks hurtling through space. (laughs) And for some reason, people think that it would lead to confusion if we were talking about both starfish or sea stars as asteroids. So we made up two other common names to make sure that that they were (laughs) clearly labeled. And so there are now people factions, if you will, who get into very strong disagreement about whether sea star or starfish is correct. And all of the words are synonyms. So <laughs> um, as long as you're not confusing brittle stars with sea stars, then, then that's fine. Um, unless you work in the Paleozoic, in which case um, there's more sort of gray area because the two anim- the, the, those two classes of echinoderms are closely related in the Paleozoic, and it's difficult to tell them apart. So, that said, either any of the terms sea star, starfish, asteroid uh, are all acceptable in a common uh, sort of name sense. So,
2: I can I can definitely vouch for your statement of the regardless of which name you use, people will because at the aquarium we have a touch pool <laughs> with some sea stars in it. We we go with sea star because it, it, the fish part is is you're not, they're not fish, but we get people all the time who will be like, you know, oh, is that a starfish? We're like, yeah, yeah, you can touch the sea stars right here. And they're like, oh, I'm sorry. Did I say it? And it's like, no, (laughs) you're fine. It's just, we use that one here. (laughs) That's, that's just, that's just what we do here.
1: Well, I've found that in recent years with education, sometimes, uh, the distinction, the correction becomes as much of a distraction as the terminology itself. Cause in education, of course, you know, you have kids and they don't know any better. Um, and you don't want to confuse them with, with the term fish as opposed to sea star. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the truth is that the term fish starfish was actually a word that was used in the English language before the term sea star was, Yep. Mm-hmm. you know, and, and frankly, the oldest word for sea star is actually an astronomical term, um, not a, a nautical one. So there are all sorts of things that, that just, etymologically don't make any sense so I've just decided it, it's fine whatever works for you as long as you understand that you know that these are echinoderms they're not they're not vertebrates uh, you know and and so educators I appreciate the term using sea star to avoid confusion but with seasoned professionals in fact one of the most seasoned professionals in my field named her book starfishes of the Atlantic so mm-hmm. it's used by by authorities in, in many ways and, you know, no harm, no foul, but, you know, but I certainly sort of understand that some people want to, uh, want to make sure that things are labeled in such a way to avoid uh, confusion.
2: Yeah. Well, these names are hard to dodge. I mean, when you get to like jellyfish, there's a hard, there's not really a great secondary name to use in that case. So yeah, you just have to roll with it.
1: Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, there was a period in the nineties when everybody was adopting like, terms to reverse all of the words. So like hagfish became sea hags and jellyfish became jellies and everybody got the mm-hmm. part of the yep. like, the sort of political correctness movement that was going on at the time. And I'm like, <laughs> jellies and hagfish don't have any, you know, political gain. That's, you know, there's no reason why you would want to call them that other than, than certain levels of accuracy within education. Um, calling the hagfish, hagfish, It's fine, you know, and it's certainly not something that resulted from from politics. So very, (laughs) very
0: strange. Anyway. Yes, yes. So let's shift over to talk about a little bit of research. When you're looking at fossil sea stars, fossil asteroids, what sort of research are you doing?
1: Ah, okay. So within the sea stars as a group, you could say that in the geologic scale of things, there are paleozoic. Stellarozoans and then there are post-Paleozoic asteroids. And so I make that distinction because modern sea stars belong to a single lineage. Everything that you think of as a sea star is essentially modern. Uh, things that live in the Paleozoic are actually bizarre forms that some, sometimes show closer relationship to brittle stars rather than to modern uh, species. And so I, my work focuses mainly on modern types of sea stars and their relatives. So there are um, lots of different kinds of fossil, sort of modern sea stars. The Cretaceous rocks of Europe are filled with really um, gorgeous uh, kind of cookie stars that look like Christmas cookies and biscuits. And they're they uh, they were formerly members of shallow water seas in the Cretaceous, roaming you know while there were. Like giant uh, dinosaurs roaming around on land, these sea stars occurred in in kind of shallow water seas in in the mid part of the United States and in Europe and you know in, in what's called the Cretaceous chalks places where uh, there was a lot of calcium carbonate and so um, you know so so these are the kinds of sea stars that I work on uh, their living relatives the Goniasteridae this is the family Goniasteridae as well as uh, other other sort of modern sea star groups. And so I look at modern um, evolutionary events that are reflective of their diversification. So in other words, how do you get so many different living species of sea stars in certain areas, uh, like the deep sea or in the tropical reefs or, you know, in, in the Arctic or, or the Antarctic. So I try to look at how many there are and, and the underlying reasons behind it, as well as historical reasons that might be associated with it. A lot of my work right now focuses on just essentially describing and counting the number of modern sea stars. So even though I I do a lot of work, I have done a lot of work with understanding the underlying history of of sea stars and starfish. Right now, a lot of it is very um, straightforward in that I'm going around to different museum collections and finding representatives of new sea star species. Uh, So in other words, to put a tree of sea stars together, you kind of need to, to know where all the branches are, and and to do that, you you need to find uh, you know taxa that branches on the tree that haven't been put there yet, and uh, you know, and so my work tends to be collaborative. I work with people that are both paleontologists and molecular biologists, and I I work at describing new species so that those scientists can work with me to kind of unravel the mystery of how they're related on these big trees uh, and then understand the evolution of sea stars in the big picture. You know? And so we start from species level stories and we go all the way up to uh, understanding the evolution of sea stars at the, cla- at the family or class level, um, you know, the underlying diversification of all the sea stars since the modern sea star lineages developed, um, since they evolved. And so, a lot of them are thought to have survived the Great Permian Triassic extinction. And so, you know, there are lots of questions. What survived? What different kinds of organisms were present? What kinds of of sea stars, in other words, were present um, early in that diversification right after the the Great Extinction? And, uh, you know, and which ones might still be around today, um, if there are any? And, you know, and so understanding some of the more bizarre forms of, say, deep sea sea stars sometimes has a, a direct tie to that early event and understanding molecular data, uh, has a direct relationship to um, understanding diversification patterns inferred from paleontology. So I tie it all together by looking at the modern forms and trying to, uh, integrate, you know, where all these disciplines overlap and it's not always easy. And, um, you know, and, and certainly it's evolved over many decades, but, uh, but but I do everything from looking at species from museums to uh, working with Oceanus Explorer, going out to sea and watching <clears throat> some of these rarely seen starfish uh, in their own habitats. And that gives me insight into their biology from a fundamental level, but also from a, you know, an, from a way that allows paleoecologists to look at at their life modes and say, Oh, well that, you know, that was significant in the, in the grand scheme of things. So it all comes together and, you know, and it gives me an excuse to go all over the world to study starfishes. And (laughs) I've actually been to all the continents now. So everywhere from Africa to Antarctica to Asia, of course there are no echinoderms on terrestrial and freshwater habitats. So I tend not to go to those places, but, but I (laughs) have been to sea uh, several times and, 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 Sometimes at, at some length. Uh, I think I was in Antarctica for about a month or so, and I've been to the Aleutians for about three and a half weeks or so. Oh, very nice. I've ranged, I've done everything from field work in, in limestone pits <clears> in Florida where I sweat out what seemed like a quarter <laughs> of my body weight. Yeah, oh, it's lovely, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, to, oh, yes. uh, to doing submersible work yeah. off the Hawaiian Islands. And of course, I was the voice on Okeanos Explorer last July in 2017, where I was narrating, uh, you know, their uh, ROV uh, from the ship, you know, and and providing a sort of narrative on all these different kinds of sea stars as we were discovering them. But of course, I'm well-rounded, so I know a little bit about everything in the deep sea, especially. And so I spoke, uh, you know, we discovered a really exciting field of glass sponges you know, we saw uh, fields of uh, carnivorous sponges, as well as many species of, spe- of starfishes, which we had never doing things we had never seen before. And uh, as I spoke today, very cool. Just, yeah, I was, oh, just, cool. I was just talking to Okeanos Explorer today, and we had just seen new feeding observations in the Gulf of Mexico. So discovery is happening. Uh, you can go to Twitter and see those things right now. You know, hashtag Oceanus and Gulf of Mexico, Richardson Ridge. And you can see some of the discoveries that were made on Twitter or made on the live stream, but see them on Twitter today. Very cool.
0: I do want to ask some more about the living starfish that you're looking at. But before I get to that, I want to make a, a question about the fossils. In this series, we've talked to a lot of people who study organisms with shells. And organisms with shells fossilize extremely well. What is the fossil record of sea stars and starfish like? For for to, you know, <laughs> you're trying to look at this whole history over, you know, 200 plus million years, you need a good sample size for that.
1: Yeah. Um working on sea stars as fossils is a challenge. Certain groups fossilize more have a, as you know have a propensity to fossilize more than others. Right. So the family that I was talking about the Goniasteridae um, they have really strongly developed skeletons. And so uh, they tend to fossilize more readily, or at least the ossicles that make up, the, these are the skeletal components that make up their skeleton, they fossilize more readily. And this is kind of a mixed blessing because only rarely do you get an intact sea star as a whole fossil. More commonly, you tend to get small sort of lozenge-shaped uh, bits left of their skeleton. And in fact, when I was (laughs) working in Florida that time uh, several years ago, um, there were places where you could literally go and, and get, you know, thousands of tiny little ossicles of sea stars from, uh, I believe it was the uh, Oligocene. And, um, you know, and the problem is you don't have a whole body fossil to go along with it. So in many (laughs) ways, it's kind of like studying vertebrates because, you know, you find lots of bones, but you, you rarely find one completely intact. Right. In, in contrast to that, uh, you know, I was just in Japan and, you know, there is an extraordinary Lagerstadt there uh, from the Miocene where deep sea asteroids are preserved in a, this very fine shale. And so uh, the specimens there are extraordinarily preserved and they're deep sea animals. And so they've found many, you know, what would otherwise be very fragile bodied uh, sea stars and echinoderms but, um, but completely intact. And um, you can see them. They're almost like looking at modern examples, but, but just short of, of having complete details. So there are animals that, that are called slime stars, for example, in the genus Hymenaster. And I discovered one of these uh, from this fossil deposit um, in one of the collections in, in Tokyo. And, um, you know, and all the details were there. It was startlingly well-preserved. And then it turned wow. out there were several of them. There were several uh, what's called pancake urchins. Well, we, you can see living examples of this on the Okeanos Explorer video feed. But they're essentially sea urchins in the family kind of thuridae, and they, uh, when when they bring up to the surface, the water evacuates from their body coelom, and so they flatten out, and hence the term, you know, pancake urchin. Oh, but okay. they have little walking legs around the edge, and they have short yeah. spines, and they're actually toxic, they or venomous rather. And you can get stung pretty badly by the living ones. Oh, yeah. The fossils, there were some that were were found uh, that, you know, they preserved a lot of the significant details perfectly. And they're just wonderful. You know, they're wonderful fossils to look at. And, uh, and so, you know, I've been working with the Japanese to try and get these specimens published. And, you know, whether I do it or whether one of their students do, does it, um, but I've been trying to help push along that, that work. And, um, and there's some remarkable uh, animals that, that they've encountered there. So, and because I work on the living, I'm able to, to sort of integrate um, what I know about modern animals with these well-preserved sort of deep sea fossils. And so that's often what I do is I try to incorporate what I know about living animals to a lot of the fossil uh, fossils that I encounter. And in fact, okay. I often observe uh, things alive that um, are evocative of, Mesozoic species, you know, so some of these Goniasterids that I'm talking about, they're essentially kind of cookie shaped. I mean, they're, they literally look like Christmas cookies. They're (laughs) and they're, you know, and they they have a a thick edge around them. And that's what the the Mesozoic forms looked like, you know, and so uh, sort of seeing the dynamics of how the living ones lived, you know, uh, provides us with insight into how the fossil ones might have lived. Uh, you know, as one of the geological disciplines um, teaches us, you know, uniformitarianism, Mm -hmm, the the past is the key to the future. or Present is the key to the past. The the processes are all the same. um, One hopes. And so (laughs) that provides at least the basis for, you know, uh, understanding the biology of some of these uh, species through time. So uh, a lot of, uh, you know, I I try to balance out what I do, uh, taking a holistic approach and incorporating you know, the different perspectives that, that I have at my disposal and into one, um, into one, uh, focus. Great.
2: The emphasis on needing to understand the modern, to understand the past, probably, I think one of the biggest unknown aspects of paleontology for most people who aren't studying it is that the, there's heavy, heavy study on modern groups because otherwise you can't
0: form a complete picture in either direction if you're just studying one or the other. I agree. Now, speaking of that, actually, I wanted to ask, so obviously you're doing a lot of work looking for sea stars, living sea stars, not only in museum collections, well, very recently living sea stars in museum collections, but also out in the the field, which in this case is the ocean, where do you go to look for sea stars? <laughs> um, it depends which sea stars, but um, but the most
1: recent field work I've done has, for example, been with the NOAA research vessel, Oceanos Explorer. But uh, I also am kind of the contact person for a lot of oceanographic uh, research vessels and and deep sea uh, research expeditions. So I don't even really need to go out to sea as much anymore because typically they have someone who's very good at collecting and preserving and, and bringing things back. Okay. You know, and so it's not necessarily uh, required for me to go out to sea with everybody all the time to bring all of it back um, you know personally It used to be when I was younger you know there were specific reasons why I needed to go out which would involve sort of getting the specific taxa that I needed or or working on you know particular species that you needed to to take DNA from or what have you but um, because a lot of what I do nowadays is focused on discovering essentially new nodes or new species, I literally sort of can go to museums or wait for other people to bring things to me. Uh, (laughs) So I go to museums. I travel a lot to natural history museums where they have collections. Uh, And these are places where the samples from different expeditions are often housed in one place. And so, you know, I can often wait for an expedition to be over for sometimes a year. And all of those specimens, all the starfish specimens from a particular place um, might be accumulated uh, and so I can look at them all in one place. Okay, cool So right and and so sometimes I go out uh, with vessels and and do personal, you know field work to collect things but usually that's because I have a specific reason to go out with them or you know Sometimes right. because it's just because I you know, there's a, a need for me to be there um, there was a, a molecular sampling trip uh, that I went to Uh, I went on with some colleagues in 2006 to Antarctica and um, I was at the time and still am one of the few people that identifies Antarctic starfishes. The one of the only people who can identify them on the deck of a ship. um, (laughs) Very cool. That's a,
0: that's a marketable skill, right? Yeah. yeah, um,
1: (laughs) That goes on the CV. Yeah. Well, it's a mixed (laughs) blessing. Let me tell you. Um, (laughs) And um, so I helped them work, work with those specimens and, and bring back, correctly identified material for the work and the projects that they were involved in, you know, but since then, I've, it's just gotten to the point where since I can't be in Antarctica all the time, <laughs> I, you know, I basically let them collect everything they, they want and and then I, they bring it back to me and I identify it for them, uh, you know, um, and, you know, and that's fine. It's there. Are, so this is another point is, which is that my expertise is actually not uh, something very commonly encountered. So uh, there are very few people that do what I do. There are actually more people who work on starfish fossils than there are who on people who, who can identify modern things. And so, yeah, it's really, it's really kind of funny, but wow. Yeah. Yeah. But there are, I think one, two, three, four, there are four paleontologists who work on starfishes right now. And technically, although I'm, I'm, I'm one of them, I'm the fifth one. I work mainly on living things. And so, you know, most right. people, if they want to know how many different species, you know, an Antarctic starfish there are, sort of looking at the recent fine tooth uh, gradations between them, um, that's really more a question for me than it is for a question for the guy who works on, you know, paleozoic things. Yeah, so, right. So it's often um, difficult because I'm the only, only one. And, you know, and some people, the other paleontologists get by on, on, you know, general identifications and all that sort of thing. And they're good at it. But, uh, but again, you know, like if people are for, for what people need, like ecologists and deep sea biologists, they usually want to know like specific, the names of specific taxa that they're encountering and they might not be relevant to to paleontologists at all. And so that's the kind of thing that I would know that um, that I would help. Right, right. So right. mainly I cater to, in that sense, I cater to ecologists. I cater to, physiologists, I, c- I cater to biologists, essentially. So um, so there's a lot of overlap, but, but there's very, it's a very short list of people that work on specific groups. And, uh, you know, we, I often joke that, um, you know, we were, I was just at an echinoderm conference in Japan, and there was me and two of the world's experts on brittle star taxonomy in one bus, and we were joking, maybe we shouldn't all get in the same bus in case you know, there's an accident, because that would pretty much end all taxonomy in those groups you know if, if something happened to us mm-hmm. so, oh and, and the sea urchin expert was with us too and so it was like oh yeah that'd just be a big double whammy. <laughs> whammy you know so
2: that's that's i'm always i find it very interesting which groups especially when they're like sea stars that are super numerous and we see them on beaches all over but then they're just not getting studied much.
0: That's very interesting.
1: Oh, that's, that's true in ways you, 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 you hit it right <laughs> off. <on. laughs>
0: so as you mentioned before, it, it sounds like one of the really nice things that you're able to do since you spend so much time looking at the living stars is bring that ecological context to looking at fossils and to interpreting uh, prehistoric records of these animals, which is really great. Then, you know, not everybody has time to, you know, you can't do both can't be it's hard to be an expert in fossils and in the living at the same time sure
1: oh yeah well yeah that's exactly right because there are certain cretaceous species that that i've seen living examples of and you know and so sometimes living examples are the same uh, but sometimes they're not and that's an important distinction you know is trying to to say well you know just because it looks like something in the past doesn't necessarily mean it was And, uh, and even if it was could it have lived this way you know there are all sorts of Things, filters that one gains from looking at things with a modern eye. So yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, cool. So out of the vast sea and the vast geologic record of invertebrate species and and groups available to you, why sea stars? To put it briefly, it's because uh, sea stars have a relatively
1: uniform body plan, but they show modification with different environments and different settings. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I liken it to the way that uh, action figures come with different suits, you know, for different habitats. <laughs> yeah. You know, you the, the Batman suit for Arctic adventure. And you have the Batman <laughs> suit for scuba adventure. You know, <laughs> right. The Batman suit for, you know, the stealth adventure. The sea stars are the same way. They often have different adaptations for different environments. You have Antarctic ones, you have deep sea ones. You have those that live on muddy bottoms, the ones that can live on sand, the ones get, that can dig into unconsolidated sandy bottoms, the ones that are specialized for living, uh, that live in the deep sea, uh, you know, in, in specific types of habitats. Some of them hold their arms up in the water to filter feed and they have special adaptations yeah. uh, that allow them to do that. And and so that's what's become, that's why I really like them is because they're really kind of a cool model animal. um, And you can look at all the different stories that emerge from this very familiar body plan. And yet they do so many different things in almost, you know, in a standardized and kind of, you know, modified sort of superficial uh, suite of changes to how they live. And, you know, and and I've always been attracted to that kind of uh, diversity, you know, is just all the weird stuff that they do. And yet they're still sea stars. They're still recognizable as sea stars. So I appreciate that part of uh, their evolution. You know, they're, they're very good models for that, but, um, and there are other, you know, just there, I could go on. There are lots of cool things they do (laughs) that are on top of all of that adaptiveness, you know, in their story, you know, because some of them do very unexpected things. Some sea stars can capture fish. And in fact, it's been pretty well established, for example, that, some sea stars can actually uh, feed on mobile prey pretty, pretty regularly. Um, There's a large monstrous starfish in Antarctica that has 50 rays and it, it lives by essentially grabbing small krill and uh, pulling them down and eating them, you know? And so it's a, it's a, Oh yeah. It's a, it's a crazy, (laughs) crazy animal. I mean, I've, I've fed them in Antarctica Um, and uh, they're, they're wonderful animals. And there's an interesting story to them on top of all of that. uh, But, um, you know, but that's what that's one aspect is that even though you've got species that live in, you know, in in, in an Antarctic habitat, you know, nothing prepares you for. Yeah, they they feed on moving prey, you know, so (laughs) it's fascinating. There's all of these unusual tweaks that echinoderms as a general rule, echinoderms have just so many bizarre solutions to problems that you know, most animals have, you know, that's what one of the things that really draws me to them is just the the strangeness as well as the, you know, the nice model qualities, but to all of the, the sort of bizarre solutions that Mm -hmm. they made to, to uh, solving or to optimizing their life mode.
0: Oh, this is one of those conversations that as when we're finished, it's going to leave me spending lots of time on Wikipedia and YouTube. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely learning and watching a lot about starfish. Well, absolutely. I can I
1: can certainly help you uh, You certainly know my blog uh, and there's a lot of information there that corresponds to what I've been saying So I can Excellent. provide you with lots of background for
0: all of that. Yeah, wonderful So in addition to your research, you know your direct research and your your journeys around the world looking for sea stars and things like that <laughs> You also do some online work for example, you have a blog. Can you tell us about that? Sure. so um, in 2006, I uh,
1: came back from a job interview and realized that although I was becoming relatively well known, um, I really wasn't getting the kind of I guess coverage that I really wanted to. Um, you know people didn't know who I was, so I thought that the best way to not only give back what I knew to, to the community, but also to sort of ha- have a, an effective outreach platform, was to start a blog, um, which was quite the, the thing back then. <laughs> so, essentially, to have a, a way to communicate all the stories that I was aware of, all of the little educational anecdotes, all of the information, well, even the starfish, sea star story, all of these things were things that I just wanted to put out there and and so the econa blog was born and um it started out very small it was a niche blog and and fortunately i had a a number of really well connected friends um at deep sea news and, and other places who were very gracious and uh, essentially piggybacked my blog along with theirs and made my name known throughout you know the internet and over time especially um during certain odd and bizarre events my blog kind of took off on its own which you know for a niche blog was kind of interesting well basically what I'm thinking of is sea pigs because there was one day yeah I know but there was one day when there was this Facebook quiz which everybody was asking you know because there was these bizarre pictures of, a, of an Antarctic sea cucumber and they were asking they were talking about these things as sea pigs and I forget about the exact um, context but but they were just showing them as part of this quiz and, and describing them as sea pigs. And I I realized then because there was a spike in my numbers with one blog post where I incidentally mentioned sea pigs that everyone wanted to know what they were. So I literally <laughs> sort of spent the entire weekend gathering up everything that was known about sea pigs, which really wasn't that much <laughs> and wrote a blog about sea pigs and boom, you know, you can look at the Google trends, the, the, the term sea pig just spikes just just crazy
2: that's fantastic uh,
1: and so i you know is it correct and humble to take credit for that probably not but i'm going <laughs>
0: <laughs> ah you earned it yeah ride that viral wave
1: that sea pig hype i well well yeah, thank you and <laughs> and then and then later on over the years other people have kind of jumped on the bandwagon including the famous z frank you know um, true facts about the sea yep. pig Yes. And um, <laughs> nope. even and so I I am credited in the back of that video at the end of the video as having the oh. help of them. And and I was actually consulted by them on the phone regarding essential facts regarding that video. So oh, that's awesome. So you know, yeah. So and I've written other, you know, really blogs that have found their own niche. I mean, in the sense that posts became popular on their own. And so uh so eventually it became relatively well known. And so in addition to that, I started tweeting, I started doing this on a more regular basis. And I realized that that was kind of the way it was going to be. Um, the, the regular blog post, writing a whole thing every week, uh, and, and blogs in general, the long form of social media became kind of passe. I still use it for writing things, but, but it's really not something that it used to be blogs were the, com, the main communication for sci and, uh, you know, and then and then Twitter became the established uh, sort of standard, and so I still use um, the blog when I want to express or put something out there, you know, that I think is worth a full column. But but Twitter is usually you know where I will promote the blog, but also answer questions and and tweet about moments or tw- or links or important things that I think need to to get out there right away and it's grown to a healthy I think it's like almost 6000 now so some 5900 followers and and Okeanos of course helped with that and this helps you know my general science communication mission you know which is simply to to bring awareness to to people about echinoderms and sea stars and and marine invertebrates and you know and invertebrates in general, and try to demystify them, remove the fear, and try to make them you know interesting creatures to people you know who might otherwise think of them only as you know those ornaments mm-hmm. that they buy at Christmas time or <laughs> or you know God forbid those painted Santa Claus things that they buy from <laughs> tourist shops <laughs> you know? so um, so I, I do my best to to try and, you know, and, and a lot of my general theory about this is that simply showing people images of these animals is enough to just get the word out regarding, regarding their existence, you know, and, and the fact that, that they're interesting. Because, well, like, you know, like uh, something like a brisingid sea star, which is a, a filter feeding sea star, nobody knew what they were, you know, maybe 10 years ago. I mean, literally the, the number of people who knew which, what one was, was limited to maybe wow. three or four people professionally. And, um, and now, you know, I can go on Okeanos and there's a dozen people, a do- hundred people who know what that is. That might not seem like a lot, but, <laughs> but that's more than people than what, you know, it's a commonly referred to term. There are lots of people who know what that is. And, and the same goes for sea pig, you know, it's still perhaps not recognized as a sea cucumber by everybody, but there are now more people who know what a sea pig is than before. And, you know, something like Scotoplanes, which is the genus of of sea cucumber to which a sea pig belongs that again was an animal that was only known to Specialists who had only read the scientific monographs, you know, who'd only ever seen the diagrams From from these 19th century monographs. So so a lot of my psychom, I think it it's like a mm-hmm. sea star movement, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it's Very small. It's very short. It's very gradual but over time. I think it does get there and um, you know, I'm very happy with simply like, you know, if I, there was one time that I, I think I tweeted the term loriciferan, which is a phylum, which is a poorly known phylum of, of animals. It's, it's a It's a phylum of animals, you know, which is something that most people don't realize. And, and so the simple fact that I used the term and explained what it was, um, you know, I would like to think that one of the thousands of people on my Twitter feed can now look to that and say, Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. You know and so again one at a time perhaps but i i'd like to think that you know maybe i've reached someone and and every little bit helps i think yeah yeah like with every you know i from a fossil perspective i was probably one of the first people to to blog about some of these weird paleozoic echinoderms you know helicoplacoids or (laughs) ophiocysteoids and i remember when i (laughs) tweeted Ophiocystioids. I thought I'm probably the only person who's ever tweeted ophiocystioids <laughs> on Twitter, and I was probably right. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah.
1: You know, and, and ophiocystioids, as it turns out, might well be that fossil kind of intermediate between sea urchins and sea cucumbers. So they are actually, even though they're kind of bizarre things that sort of seem more like a nightmare from a Cthulhu, you know, storybook, <laughs> um, they actually turn out to be phylogenetically quite important in the grand scheme of things. So things like that are what I
0: like to take home as the little victories. And on top of your social media, you know, blogging and, and, and doing this sort of psychom online, you also do outreach in person, don't you? Um, I have done
1: outreach in person. I don't mind doing it. It's not something that I find as effective, mainly. I mean, I've done uh, scientist-is-in type uh, events in the museum. I've done public talks for sort of these evening date night type things at some clubs sometimes. There's a, a YouTube video of my giving a talk. which was part of a DC Nerd Night <laughs> event, uh, which um, went over very well, and I was very proud nice. of that. I think I've only done that once, however... And, uh, you know, I, I used to do outreach for the Monterey Bay Aquarium when I was an undergraduate. And, oh, uh, and cool. so, okay. yeah, so I, I, I've logged many hours talking to people and uh, sharing stories about, about marine invertebrates. You know, essentially, as most of my uh, training when I was an undergraduate. And, uh, and so, you know, I've now moved on and I'm the scientist is in here at the National Museum of Natural History. When I do these little shows you know, I, I engage a lot of people. I was told once, and I don't know if this record has been broken, that I engage the most number of people at uh, Scientist is in session uh, than anyone else in the three hours that, that people are on the Ocean Hall floor. Uh, so Very nice. Yeah, so uh, well that done. just means that I've talked continuously for three hours, which, again, yeah.
0: that makes <laughs> a blessing. <laughs> yes, that one Will and I both understand. Yes. Sure. Yes, we do. Uh, Fun fact for you, by the way, While after you said it, I went over to, uh, while you were explaining, I I typed very quickly into Twitter search. The word ophiocystioids has been used less than 20 times on Twitter, and they are almost all you, (laughs) (laughs) including the very first one.
1: (laughs) So you're absolutely right. Nice. I, I can sleep well at night then. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> can Congratulations. Rest
0: the Twitter, the Ophiosistioid Twitter award goes to you. <laughs> I, I can only say amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Do you get a lot of response from, from people on social media with, when you're tweeting about, you know, sea C- C- stars living or fossil? Do you have any? What lets you know that you're, you're reaching your audience?
1: Um, I get the most response when I'm doing something that's being widely publicized, such as Okeanos Explorer. In fact, okay. today, for example, I just got an email from someone who just literally wanted to let me know that she thought I was great. You know, oh, my nice. call to Okeanos Explorer, you know, she, she felt they were very informative and, and I guess I have a friendly tone. So, you know, and, and this was a person who worked as a, uh, a geology instructor I guess so but uh, you know I, I I have occasionally gotten uh, messages from Twitter other you know Twitter people as well as personal messages ever since my blog started I've gotten some feedback uh, per- personal colleagues and, and whatnot tell me have told me that they very much like you know the outreach that I do you know so I can only believe them <laughs> and <laughs> um, you know and, and of course You know, there's, there's of course, I mean, there are some objective means of, of seeing how far the blog has reached all the numbers and metrics and such. But yeah, I mean, in truth, I don't know how, how widely affecting the blog and my social media are. Um, But I take every small bit of feedback that I can get and it all seems to be pretty positive. Mm -hmm. I rarely receive any negative feedback or any kind of negative pushback you know i think the only time that i received an, an incredibly negative pushback on anything was during the time that i was debunking several of the fukushima sort of <laughs> starfish wasting disease myths that mm-hmm. had popped up around the time and so a little background just a quick story but that was essentially uh, there was a a disease epidemic hitting the pacific west northwest coast yes right, right. I remember that right and uh, and so th- there were sea stars dying in mass. There were literally hundreds of them just dissolving into uh, goo coincidentally, there had been a accident at Fukushima as a result of the tsunami that had hit Japan mm-hmm. at that point and and so they had thought that the there there was a catastrophist or disaster website which was spreading misrepresentative information that the two were connected and people were drawing that connection Mm -hmm. very spuriously. And so I got an invitation from deep sea news to write a post explaining exactly why the two were, were completely unconnected. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it wasn't, you know, there wasn't any real, contest there because starfish wasting disease had been documented almost two years or three years before Fukushima even happened. Yeah, You know, I mean, that's not, that's not even rocket science. It's just timing. Mm-hmm. And the pushback on all of that was just tremendous because there were so many, oh, yeah. you know, there was so much, hostility uh you know to you know sort of a war are you a nuclear shell or you're being paid lots of money by the nuclear industry and i was
0: like Mm -hmm. no people don't like debunkers yeah
1: well i was like well it's like the 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 funny story that every scientist tells about being paid off by an industry (laughs) if i was being paid that much money i you know i'm sure not seeing it i mean i'd love to have more money (laughs) for that you know but but no you know and so but the truth prevailed and you know and i think it's it's gone on and, you know, the starfish wasting disease story continues and people are discovering more about what's going on there. But I played my role in that as well. You know, I helped uh, waylay some of the uh, misinterpretations uh, of the story. Some of my colleagues had inadvertently spread around and uh, I'd also uh, done my share to break the story to people Mm -hmm. on my blog. So, um, you know, and I still talk to people about bits and pieces of it which i think have gone unnoticed but i i know a lot of the key players who who are looking into that issue now and so um you know i'm happy that you know i could have even if i was an incidental player in that whole um story i was glad to have have sort of helped with it
0: absolutely yeah
1: so anyway that was the the sort of the only time that i've gotten really
0: negative pushback um
1: i've gotten lots of good interaction Excellent, for the most part. Excellent.
0: Yeah. Very cool. So the last thing we wanted to ask you about, as we have been doing this series and we've been talking to a bunch of scientists, mm-hmm. and as if people have listened to this series up until this point, they've heard us say this, we are doing these interviews over the summer and the summer is a tough time to get hold of scientists because scientists <laughs> are always going on trips and you, and you actually just mentioned this uh, a couple times on this discussion, You just came back from Japan. (laughs) Yes. Can you tell us a bit about what what was your trip to Japan like and and, and as much about the fossil stuff as you can? Sure. So
1: um, this particular trip was um, partly to visit Japan for the International Echinoderm Conference, where I will be joining uh, a team of paleontologists to write uh, the new treatise on invertebrate paleontology sea star section. Okay. Which is a big thing for, for people who who do this sort of thing. And so there was a big meeting of other people who will be writing their respective sections in the treatise. So, you know, the Echinoid people, the um, Paleozoic um, Echinoderm people, you know, so if you work on edrio asteroids or all those other things, all those people were there and they're all going to be writing their respective chapters in the treatise of invertebrate paleontology. So, um, so there's that. The uh, museum that I visit. So after the meeting, I also went to the uh, Tokyo museum, the the J- Japan's essentially Japan's museum of nature and science. They're, they're Smithsonian,
0: if you will. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And so their collections included uh, a many uh, new species and many other taxa, uh, but also, uh, you know, the repo- one of the largest repositories of fossil asteroids in, in Japan. And so so I'm continuing to work with a lot of them on this deposit of Miocene deep sea fossils, and and so that was one of the things that I worked on was to look at um, some of these fossils and and to try and figure out what they are, and in the hopes of eventually publishing on them, or at least helping uh, some of the people who, uh, who have collected them to publish them or recognize them and or deposit them in the museum. A lot of what I work on again overlaps with what they have as fossils. So for example, there is this one, I, I think I'd mentioned earlier, a slime star. And, right. you know, and so basically these are very delicate sea stars uh, and they have a gelatinous covering which makes up the entire top surface of their body. And as a defense mechanism, they can shoot mucus as, as sort of a, a defensive projection. It's oh, lovely.
0: Interesting. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. That sounds great.
1: But they're, they're really poorly calcified animals, and their body is made up of essentially a bunch of rods. You know, I mean, they're kind of very poor, weakly skeletonized animals. Echinoderms are made up of an endoskeleton. And, and these particular sea stars have a very poorly developed one. Uh, and so among the fossils that they have in this collection are um, fossil members of this genus, Hymenaster. And so there are people in Japan working on on that fauna. And so I, I was the one who actually identified the first fossil of that group of sea stars. And uh, I'm working to try and get that published, whether it's from me or, or a Japanese student. We're still kind of working on it. But but that's yeah. a remarkable instance of preservation, you know, and, uh, and it was such an, un- it was so unexpected that I wasn't even sure what I was looking at it until, you know, <laughs> I, I literally, you know, had them side by side. So there are lots of interesting things that, uh, I discover when I go on these trips and visiting other countries and, and their natural history museums is often a rich source of, you know, publication data for me. And, um, so certainly, yeah. And so, cause there are uh, specimens that I, uh, they have the specimens, but I have the expertise, and and so you get the two together, and boom, you have a bunch of publications. And so, um, <laughs> for example, uh, I regularly visit the Paris Museum, the Museum National d'Histoire Naturelle, and mm-hmm. you know, and they just recently brought back uh, several collections from the Indian Ocean, from Madagascar, and from other places along the coast of Africa. And so, I've worked on describing a lot of new species. I I have a paper that's currently in review that should be published this year that includes three new genera and I think something like 12 or 15 new species from the Indian
0: Ocean. Oh wow.
1: Yeah and uh, I just published something earlier this year that had a lot of data from from New Caledonia and among other places and again a very you know a huge uh, monograph describing uh, several new genera and dozens of new species. So, you know, and, and then including a subfamily. So there are all sorts of things that, that, and in, in fact, in the last, that last paper included also some comments on uh, a fossil sea star that, uh, that was in the Paris collections. So, so anytime that I've done work on modern sea stars, I try and incorporate what I know about fossils into it. Uh, so that, you know, the, again, that I sort of take that holistic approach so that everything can, can be treated comprehensively because there is a long history in science of biologists essentially ignoring geology and paleontology and vice versa you having paleontologists <laughs> essentially ignoring biology yeah you know and, and there's no reason to so you know it's just that there are people that just have these artificial boundaries and so you know
0: it's just one of those things that i've gotten around yeah you're a liaison Mm-hmm. yeah the the paleontologists right. and what paleontologists call neontologists
3: yes
1: exactly it's which, which a word
0: that only someone who's not a neontologist would use yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> so yeah and you know and, and so do i have a bias yes because
1: anytime i see a sea star like an oceanus some living animal you know i'll see it as well that that's kind of a cool fossil that's alive you know i mean mm-hmm. like, you know, i mean if I, i'll think about whether it has a fossil record or not and you know, and whether or not what we're seeing might have relevance. So today, you know, we saw um, what's called a perineid, a uh, sea star that has a a lot of um, tissue covering its body. Uh, Mm -hmm. Those were recently discovered to be represented by fossils from the Triassic, which is really unusual because it's early in the Mesozoic. Um, But also it turned out that phylogenetically, molecular data data, taken from molecular extractions of different sea star groups, shows them to be a, an early branch within a large group of sea stars called the Valvatacea, which is where most of the diversity of sea stars is, is found. So anytime you you have uh, new observations of animals like that, it's relevant, I think. And, uh, you know, sure. and so or maybe for paleoecologists, or maybe just, just to clarify what how they live. You know, I mean, uh, there were people who used to think those sea stars were only ciliary filter feeders and it turns out they're probably predatory and so you know the there are some people who have made hi- entire hypotheses about the evolution of groups based on these sort of you know early non-evidence-based like guesses essentially yeah yeah. And people who would say oh well you know they're they're filter feeders but now you know the you know they their, their close sister taxa are, are predators. And so there must be a shift between them. You know? So that, that kind of thing is something that I'm trying to head off by, by providing real data on what a lot of these animals do in real life, um, you know, as we see them alive mm-hmm. in their habitat. So,
0: which is something that a lot of paleontologists don't get a chance to do. Very true, very true. Very cool. Chris, this has been a whole lot of fun. It's been great to hear about your research. If our listeners feel the same way, where might they locate you on the internet? Ah, ah Well, if you are on
1: Twitter, you're welcome to find me at uh, Echino Blog, E C H I N O B L O G. Um, and similarly, my blog on Blogspot is the same. I mean, if you Google bl- Echino Blog, you'll get most mostly me. I think there was a strange <laughs> coincidental French blog called the kind of blog but I don't know if it even exists anymore but ignore that part and, <laughs> and just go to mine and mine will have a lot of stuff about everything from slime stars to weird paleozoic fossils to, to just a whole bunch of stuff the blog link can be found on my twitter handle
0: okay and we'll put we'll put the twitter and the blog and all that in the podcast description
1: sure yeah yeah and I'd love to you know hear from people if they have questions on uh, other comments or you know if they want to learn more about sea stars especially um but uh but i'll tolerate questions about sea pigs and you know, <laughs> yeah. like um but i mean all the iconic uh deep sea animals <clears throat> giant isopods and deep sea cephalopods and and whatnot i love all those things you
0: know i just, yeah really- wonderful so l- if our listeners have questions and curiosities about deep sea invertebrate life now they know where to go
1: <laughs> absolutely Um, I, I'm not an expert in everything, but I do know, I do,
0: I do know all of those experts. So (laughs) there you go. That's, that's the trick. That's how, that's how (laughs) how Will and I skate by. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. We really appreciate having you here.
1: I, I greatly appreciate your opportunity. Uh, I mean, this has been fun and, uh, I hope that there will be another moment when I can come back and talk about whatever other topic might be on hand someday. All Wonderful. Right.
2: We hope so too. We ever have to do a C-Star episode. Yeah, yeah. yeah we know the guy. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, we
0: know. Well, if you're ever in Washington, let me know. Yes. Absolutely. And listeners, thank you as always for tuning into this episode. If you like this series, let us know all the usual social media places and ways to contact us. And keep listening because the series has not ended yet. Mm-hmm. And we hope you'll join us next time. Goodbye, everybody. See ya. Thank you. Have a great weekend or a day or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to the Common Descent podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on patreon the song you're hearing is called on the origin of species by protodome which we found at ocremix.org thanks again for listening we hope you'll join us next time